everyone, and welcome to this episode of Guts and Glory. Today, we have two fantastic guests, and I cannot wait for you to meet them. And they are here to talk about the 2023 Impact of Inflammatory Bowel Disease in Canada report. Our first guest is Kate Lee, who's the Vice President of Research and Patient Programs at Crohn's and Colitis Canada. For six years, Kate's had the privilege of working with Canada's extended inflammatory bowel disease community to develop and run research and patient programs to find the cures and improve the quality of life of everyone affected by these diseases. Kate was a health researcher prior to moving over to not-for-profit health organizations that focuses on driving impact to improve patients' lives while seeking cures. I've had the pleasure of knowing Kate for a few years now, and I am so elated that she is here today. She will be joined by Dr. Eric Benchamal, who is a professor of pediatrics and clinical epidemiology at the University of Toronto, and a pediatric gastroenterologist and interim program director of the GI Fellowship Program at SickKids Hospital in Toronto. He holds the Northbridge Chair of Inflammatory Bowel Disease at the SickKids Inflammatory Bowel Disease Centre. Dr. Benchamal is also an epidemiologist and chairs the Canadian Gastrointestinal Epidemiology Consortium, which conducts epidemiology, pharmacoepidemiology, outcomes, and health services research using health administrative data from multiple provinces. So, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. You are both very busy people, so I appreciate you making the trek to the studio to be with us today. So before we get started talking about the report, we should probably start with what exactly is the 2023 Impact of Inflammatory Bowel Disease in Canada report. So I'll start. So um, it's... um, It's the most comprehensive report on IBD in Canada. And so it's one where we have so many people involved. We have over 100 people contributing to the report, of which I think uh, Dr. Benjamin, about 30 are scientists. Mm -hmm. We had um, patient partners and caregivers involved as well, uh, around 45 of those. Wow. And other volunteers who all got together to help develop this report. Um, it covers everything. Uh, it, it used to be called the burden of IBD in Canada. And I, I think that kind of suggests what the idea is. Right. In terms of, from a science perspective, what are the various aspects of IBD that we need to be aware of um, for for all our stakeholders, for our scientists, for Crohn's and Colitis Canada, so that we can do a better job in identifying what do we need to do helps to help support who are diagnosed with to help support people who are diagnosed yeah. with Crohn's and colitis. Um, it's, um, it, and it's astounding. It was a really impressive effort. It took over one year to, um, to develop and publish. We launched it in June 1st. And um, I've been a, making my way through it, Kate. I'm fairly certain it's like 277 it pages. <laughs> it is. Like this it is, is not a pamphlet. No, this is it is not a report. pamphlet. No. Absolutely. And I'm still reading it. <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's many sections, right, from children and adolescent. Yeah. You know, indirect and direct costs of IBD. Absolutely. You know, all of the things, some of them which we will discuss here today. Yeah. Um. So. Why do this report? And like, how long have we been doing it? You mentioned that it used to be called something else. Yes. Um, I do know, you know, four or five years ago, I think, the listeners will probably know better than me, we had some guests on talking about the 2018 report. But So why are we doing the report? How long have we been doing it, even if it had a different name? So we've started, we started this in 2007, I believe. 
Wow. And okay. um, Dr. Benchwell here, um, I think, started with us in 2007. Yeah. I think at that time, you might your position might have been different. Well, but... I was still a trainee. I was still a fellow. So I was on the committee that produced the first report. I think the, it was like a pamphlet, really. It was like it was 20 pages. It was a young Dr. Benchwell. Yeah, Benchimal. it was a very, yes. very much younger <laughs> Dr. Benchwell. Um, and yeah, it was, I mean, it was intended originally to understand, to sort of give a report to right. Crohn's and Colitis Canada and to the world about what was happening with IBD in Canada. There was a lot less research at the time on the epidemiology, which means the rates of IBD in Canada and how IBD might impact the health system and how it impacts patients. So it was a pretty thin report. There was an update in 2012. Yes. Um, and then in 2018, uh, my research group sort of took that over. That's the Canadian Gastrointestinal Epidemiology Consortium. And those are really the researchers all across Canada that create this knowledge. So really right. do the epidemiology research and try to understand how the healthcare system is treating people with IBD, um, try to improve the care of people with IBD through the health system. And so, you know, we, we sort of took on the report as the main goal was to advocate for IBD patients. Right. Uh, and But the secondary goal really is to try to understand the gaps in research. Like what could we be doing as researchers that will improve the landscape and try to make things better for people living with IBD? Right. Kind so, of like so. CCC's promise. We're not just looking for a cure, but we're also how do we better the lives of those living with IBD exactly. while they live with it? Yeah. yeah. In the exactly. meantime, we're also looking for a cure, of yeah. course. <laughs> and what I might add to that is... Um, Eric was talking about how it was a report from the researchers to CCC, and it absolutely was, and it still is. But I would say it's evolving now. I think it's one where CCC is really partnering with the researchers to really right. think about what is the next iteration of the report? What do we need to think about from a patient and caregiver perspective that we need to start talking about in the report? Right. Um, so, and from a CCC perspective or Crohn's and Colitis Canada perspective, this is such an instrumental report. It's one of our go-to resources when we think about, well, how do we help um, right. uh, all the things that we do with our promise? And not only that, but I've heard from so many of our other extended partners in the IBD community, like, for example, our um, industry partners, right. where they, they talk about that this is the report that they go to to learn about IBD in Canada. What is the burden? And how do we address it? What are the gaps, as Eric said? Well, even as a patient myself, the report is important for me. And I think that's why I was so happy that you guys were coming to talk about the report for our listeners, patients and caregivers, those who love us, because it also gives us the tool belt to help us advocate for ourselves. Absolutely. And to join forces with the gastroenterologists, with Crohn's and Colitis Canada, so that together we can we can fight for what's right for us. Yes. What's going to improve the landscape of IBD. Yeah. yeah. And this year, what's really different is the addition of the patient voice. So right. in mm -hmm. previous years, it really was a report by researchers and by CCC for the world. But now, like we really felt it was important that the patient voice be heard and they uh, give their sort of viewpoint on everything that we're talking about. Because again, I think that's where we're going to get the ideas of how to make things better for them. You know, I think it can't be just researchers saying to patients, this right. is what's going to make you better. Right. Yeah. You need to hear from patients what's happening. I've noticed in the patient world, there has been, you know, a big push in the last few years of, you know, the shared decision making model, you know, the patient centered approach, like really talking and involving patients in their healthcare, not just mm -hmm. from a patient perspective, but from the holistic healthcare outlook as well. Right. So I think the fact that this is included in this report is very timely. Yeah. Like it's it's 
couldn't have come at a perfect time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, there, I'm not, I want to say, what does the report tell us? But let's be honest, it's 277 pages. It tells us a lot. We can focus. So we can, we can, can focus some of those stats. So, you know, I'm assuming you're going to have to read some of those stats because even in my brain, there's population numbers and percentages. But tell us, like, what does it, what does it tell us? One, I do know the overarching thing that sticks out in my mind is that the numbers are increasing. Well, yeah, and they have been for a while. Um, so right now, living with IBD in Canada, I'm checking the number, just make sure I've got it, is 322,000 people live with IBD in Canada. It's about 0.8% of the population. Okay. And that number is expected to rise based on some, some studies that we've done to about 1.1% of the population. So around 470,000 people by 2035. I think, Dr. Bento, when people hear 1.1%, they're like, but then yeah. when you turn that into population numbers, yeah. it's almost half a million people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a huge number for a chronic disease in Canada, especially yeah. a chronic disease which affects people so greatly, right. yeah. affects their lives, affects their family. And also with the newer treatments, which work very well, the biologics also cost the healthcare system a lot of money. Right. And, so, and now there's more of us. Yeah, there's and more there's more. Of, yeah. So we need to figure out a way that we can afford to treat people the best way possible. Right. And, um, you know, not bankrupt the health system at the same time. Right. So it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough, but I, I think it's, there's ways, there's solutions in the impact report and things that CCC has been working on through input from our community that will, I think, help with the uh, rising costs in healthcare. And um, this speaks to um, the programs. I think in one of your podcasts, Chantal, you talked about the PACE program, and that's one example. And yeah. our Impact of IBD report, as a matter of fact, talks about that, where there's a lot of barriers to access to care. Uh, and the key thing that I've I've learned after joining Coronavirus and Clinic um, Canada and speaking to clinicians that, such as Dr. Benchmull is that the key to um, an improved um, health outcome for people who are diagnosed with Crohn's and colitis is really to catch them early, as early as possible, and treat them early. Right. And and not only that, but to manage the um, their their disease um, very much in partnership with the gastroenterologists, the clinicians, right. and to uh, approach it from a standardized way so that there's equity. And we don't have that right now. And right now, uh, through our PACE program, we're addressing a lot of those gaps. And Kate, just to remind our listeners, PACE stands for? Promoting Access and Care Through Centers of Excellence. Yes. And I think one of the things that's unique about Canada is geographically, we are huge. Yes. And we have a lot of remote communities who don't necessarily have a gastroenterologist or a gastroenterologist specializing in IBT within their community uh -huh. so they're being treated by gps you know who may are not specialists in this area and ibd is a very multifaceted disease yes um so the pace program also helps with that and i believe kate you guys are if i remember correctly from one of the last webinars i was on helping with the transition absolutely yes. and that's something that's being led by dr benchmill so Eric, of course it is of course it is it's about <laughs> pediatrics so that's some certainly something that you can talk about eric yeah absolutely yeah. so i mean I, Part of what this report says is that the incidence is rising. So the number of new diagnoses is rising most rapidly in kids and particularly right. kids under the age of six years old. So very, very young children are getting the disease. When I was training back when we talked about the first report came out in 2008, you would rarely see a child under five years old diagnosed with Crohn's or colitis. 
Uh, now it's routine all the time. I was going to say, I remember touches of that in the 2018 report too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah Children no, under the age of five, I think it was, yeah. but now yeah. it's six. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, the number of new diagnoses, thankfully, the number of new diagnoses every year seems to be flattening out in adult populations. Okay. What about the elderly population? Because I know at one point there was... Yeah. New diagnoses are flat. So it's the same okay. number every year. Now okay. people are living longer with the disease, which right. means so that increasing. actually, yeah, the number yeah. of people, elderly living. people living right. with IBD is growing really quickly. Right. But the number of new diagnoses seems to be only rising in the very, very young group. Uh, and we can talk about why that is. That's also heartbreaking for me. Yeah, it is. It is. It's very yeah, I, di- I was diagnosed at 20, so I didn't have that experience. Yeah. yeah. We have a lot of research going on to try to understand why it's happening and the causes of this very early onset IBD, as we call it. Um, but part of the impact, obviously, there's an impact on the family. There's an impact on the child. And then all of these children are going to have to live through transition from pediatric to adult care, right. which means that they're going to have to go from you know, uh, child-focused, t- family-focused. with them. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, the family-focused hospital and joint decisions to being on their own in an adult world where they have to be adults and know about their disease and advocate for themselves. So part of the big issue in pediatric care is teaching them that, right? So right. That, that's what transition from pediatric to adult care means is that gradually we have to teach them how to be independent, how to be advo- self-advocates, how to learn the names of their meds and where their right. disease is and and tell the doctor when they're not feeling well. And is it 9, nine to 18? 19? 18 is the time for transfer in right. most provinces, in most Which provinces. Which is also, if you're going to post-secondary education, yep. it's, it's a, a huge, huge yeah, curve yeah. at that time. Change. Yeah, exactly. Pretty from one province to another, perhaps, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah so no. we're trying to teach them and get them ready. And that's right. what the transition is. Uh, and so one of the PACE programs that I'm helping to lead is looking at an intervention. It's actually a clinical trial, but instead of trying a drug, <laughs> we're trying kind of a, what we call a psychosocial intervention. So right. it's really um, an education program to teach them about living with IBD as an adult. It's skills building. So we have two psychologists who helped us design a program that helped build resilience and mindfulness and awareness of their own body. Uh, it's, so key. Yeah, we absolutely. need that in adults. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's what we're trying to teach them for adulthood. Um, and then a navigator who will help them, who could be a nurse practitioner or a social worker who helps them from the pediatric time to the adult time. So they're not them making that transition alone. By themselves. Yeah, wow. exactly. Uh, and then individualized assessment for every patient. So every patient is different. Their needs are different. We're kind of figuring out what they need right when they come into the PACE program and then uh, try to follow through and make sure that they get it over the following three, three, four years. Right. So I wasn't diagnosed as a child, so I didn't go through this transition. However, you know, 16 and a half years of having IBD, the podcast, the thousands of people I've met with IBD, that has always come up with patients who were diagnosed pediatric and then trans- transitioned into adult care and and the gap. Wow. And, and so like if there was a hole, you have found it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I I can't even imagine what will come out of this, this clinical trial. And, and yeah. I really do hope it comes to fruition and there is something that's permanent because it does seem to be quite a shock to the system for IBD patients who are transitioning. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, one of the advantages of doing it through Crohn's and Colitis Canada is that it's it'll be national, right? So right. the other issue in Canada listeners may not be aware of right. is that every province has their own health system. Yes. And funding for every province from every province is different. Yeah. And so if a province can't afford an education program for the kids, Crohn's and Colitis Canada will provide it. 
Uh, if a province can't afford a navigator, the navigator will hopefully, if the trial works, right, we have to make sure that it's actually effective. I think it's going to work. I hope so. It's <laughs> uh, my gut feeling. <laughs> the idea would be that Crohn's and Colitis Canada would provide this central resource so all kids in Canada can get the same access to the same intervention and make things better going forward. Right. So essentially it's going to, after it's been trialed in the PACE program as a clinical trial, It'll be moving over to our patient program side. Okay. So, Chantal, I think you're quite familiar with our patient programs. I am. And our listeners know that CCC has a very large space in my heart, also takes up a lot of my free time, which I adore. <laughs> which we appreciate <laughs> I as do well. it on purpose because I love it. So, <laughs> And it's it's just going to be an extension of all the patient programs that we offer. So right. it will be one of those that will be specifically for uh, youth who will be transitioning into the adult care model. Which is unfortunate. One of the reasons why Dr. Benchmol had to do this was because there's a difference. There's such a huge difference between the pediatric model and the adult model. And that in itself is uh, something that I think that was brought up in the impact report. It's about the multidisciplinary care model. Yeah. Children, they have it. Right. And very holistic. Very holistic. Yeah. Like Dr. Benchmol, you're at Sick Kids, which is a Sick Kids in Toronto, which is. I've spoken about it many times here, a, a, and a wonderful place, beautiful place, um, and very holistic. There is a team yes. of care, yeah. right? And that is not the norm Within. in adult healthcare. Yeah. And if it, if it is, and you can access these things, it's up to you to reach out to these individuals and, and have that happen. So Absolutely. I mean, by the very fact that in this transition care model, it's a psychosocial model where they talk about mindfulness, and uh, that's one of the things that was brought up in, in this report, the importance of mental health right. and managing your disease. And that's being recognized in this transition program, hence why we had uh, we have two psychologists, uh, clinical psychologists, who are working as part of the investigators in this transition care um, program to develop something that helps the, build the resilience and, and the ability to manage stress, if you will, right. to be able to take better care of themselves. Which realistically managing stress, for me, stress is the number one trigger in my IBD. Stressful situations, it, I'm done. <laughs> I am out. Yeah. See you later. <laughs> so the report is also, so there's com- some components that are new. I know we've mentioned them. So there's the patient caregiver input is now in the report, mental health you just mentioned. But the report also outlines some challenges about uh, populations who may have some barriers. Uh-huh. And what are some of those? Do you want to? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, we talked about children. Children, I think yeah. is a big one. And uh, seniors are also, you know, facing important issues when it comes to IBD. You right. know, not the least of which is that as you get older, you have other chronic diseases. Absolutely. And you have to manage, you know, interactions between medications, uh, many healthcare providers involved and not a lot of coordination. So I think this growing group of seniors is leading to a, an IBD clinic in the adult, on the adult side, which is very different than it was before right. and requires a lot more communication between doctors and nurses and other groups. Uh, you know, I think a multidisciplinary key team will be needed in seniors as well, although they haven't quite established that type of clinic. But we've also, we have sections that are focused on gender, sex and gender. Okay. So both women with IBD, especially when they get pregnant and at other times in their lives, right. but also people who are transgendered and cross-gendered um, really face important issues that we haven't acknowledged up until now. And I think they are just coming to light through various research projects. Right. So we have a, a, a chapter focused on sex and gender and how, it, how IBD impacts. Um, and then, uh, you know, First Nations and Indigenous communities. Okay. Unfortunately, 
I would say um, not enough research has gone into understanding IBD in First Nations communities, mm -hmm. particularly what are the rates and are they rising like the rest of Canada? Right. Um, and how does IBD impact people in those communities? How do they cope with the disease? What sort of care models helps them the most? Well, it sounds very similar when we're talking about, like, I'm very privileged to live close to the city of Toronto. I live in uh -huh. Pickering. Uh -huh. I receive my health care by Dr. Silverberg at Mount Sinai. Uh -huh. I have access to top centers. You know, when we were talking about pace in rural communities, I also think about some of our Indigenous communities who are not urban Indigenous but are living in rural. Like, that's a completely different landscape of IBD. Uh -huh. Like, that yeah. can look entirely different. I think it's also important for us to recognize that culturally, the type of care that First Nations peoples may want is different than the type of care that you and I would want in a city. Right. Um, we certainly need more First Nations healthcare providers helping. Yes. But more coordination and trying to understand what a culturally appropriate care model looks like for Absolutely. First Nations peoples. So unfortunately, that's that was identified as a, a major gap in our knowledge. But hopefully, I think we're going to try to work uh, going forward. There's there's doctors, one particular, Dr. Pina Sanchez, who's a researcher in Saskatchewan, who's working really hard with First Nations communities in Saskatchewan and Ontario and other places to try to understand their needs and the impact of IBD on, on their lives. Well, it is definitely unfortunate that we found that gap. But the fact that it's now been named and it's put there mobilizes us start. to do something about mm -hmm. it. Yeah, you yeah know? absolutely. Uh, and I think we're engaging, again, part of the the patient voice here were two First Nations people with IBD living in Manitoba and Saskatchewan, I believe. So uh, I think their voice is starting to be heard as well now. Mm -hmm. So in the, um, in the report, um, we talked about, I mentioned that we had 45 patients and caregivers who were part of the um, report. And we did have First Nations people, um, people of First Nations background who were part of that 45. Um, but there definitely is more room. And mm -hmm. Dr. Benchmol, he talked about um, wanting to learn more about in on Ontario and, and Saskatchewan. So uh, for the listeners who are of First Nations descent, a call out. This is an opportunity to truly partner with uh, Dr. Benchmol uh, to start building something. Uh, Absolutely. To understand more about the First Nations community. Yes. Yeah. Now, one of the new components of the 2023 report is this mental health component. Uh -huh. For listeners of Guts and Glory, they know I am big on mental health and not a single patient has rolled through this podcast and not at some point mentioned the impact yeah. IBD has had on their mental emotional health. Uh -huh. So what does the report say, you know, obviously generally, because it's a lot of pages, about mental health and IBD? And I just want to say that it's it's as a patient, it's very gratifying to know that that's been put in there as well, yeah. mm -hmm. that that exists. It's being acknowledged. Uh -huh. Yeah, uh -huh. I, I agree. And I think that this chapter, which is new in this year's report, is really the jewel of the report or one of the jewels. I shouldn't give the other ones short shrift, is but uh, it really is an amazing chapter that was led by uh, Dr. Leslie Graff, who's a psychologist in Manitoba, and Dr. Charles Bernstein, a very famous adult gastroenterologist in Manitoba. Yes. yes. Um, that is really their area of expertise, uh, really, and they're actually running one of the PACE programs for mental health and people with IBD. Yep. But, you know, the bottom line is that we are recognizing that IBD plays a huge role on mental health, but also on mental illness, and that people with IBD have much higher rates of anxiety and depression needing treatment. Right. Um, and particularly adolescents, teenagers have much higher rates, of, up to about a fifth of teenagers with IBD have anxiety and depression. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we're, we're starting to understand the need there. 
And we're starting to see that it's probable that treatments for their anxiety and depression will also help them better cope with IBD, make sure that they're more adherent to medications, meaning they take them regularly, and also potentially, and we're looking into this, but may actually help put the disease in remission if their mental health is I was just going to say, like, what comes first? It's like a chicken and an egg for me. Like, yeah. does, does my IBD symptoms make my mental health worse? Or does when I have issues with anxiety and depression, which of both I've been diagnosed and medicated for, does that make my IBD worse? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. It's, if we focus on helping both, like you said, Absolutely. we're hoping, like it, the hope is that this will help do some disease maintenance yeah. Yeah, of IBD. And if I can ask, bring in the advocacy angle. And this is an example of, as you said, Chantal, from a patient perspective, that's something that um, you yourself and other people who have been diagnosed with Crohn's and colitis knew that there was a strong link between yeah. mental health and developing flares and so forth. Um, we now have it in our impact report. And when we go to policymakers, um, they always are looking for evidence. Right. Now you have the proof. Looking for data. Right. Yes in order for us to be able to advocate. So we now have something that it's we can It's not just, actually... hey, Chantel over at Guts and Glory exactly. says it impacts the mental health. I hate to right? say that, <laughs> no, but yes. but that's not good enough. Yeah. No, totally. We need it yeah. on paper. Like there yeah. has to be stats there. No, absolutely. It's uh, it, was, it was actually the first part of the report that I flipped to myself. I was like, oh, like there's a mental health part. <laughs> you know what? I did that too. <laughs> like, let me go there first. Like, <laughs> And I, I would say that we're, we're joining a growing chorus of people uh, with multiple chronic diseases and even the general population, raising alarms that the mental health crisis totally. in Canada is real. Yeah. And that we really need- And it's really not just need... because of COVID. No, no it's not just because of COVID. It was always there. there. Yes. COVID made it worse, yes. but it's persisting. Yes. And we really need more treatments. We need more healthcare providers, psychologists, psychiatrists, Absolutely. family doctors that are trained properly. Um, and it, we can't just leave this as sort of the the orphan in the back room who's not getting the light of day and not, right. not being funded. Yeah. So particularly, uh, you know, we talked about the multidisciplinary care in pediatrics, but I think people with IBD who have mental health issues also need multidisciplinary care and they need access to specialist health, mental health care providers who will treat their disease, their mental health issues, their mental illness, as, as well as their IBD at the same time. Right. Uh, so we really need that people partnerships working together to do both the medical side of things and the mental side of things. When yeah. I was first diagnosed with IBD, I did not see anybody for my mental health. And like I said, I was 20 and I was told I was chronically ill. There was no cure. The pain, medications you had mentioned, like even just remembering to take some medication, learning that what are the side effects, dealing with the side effects of medication, appointments. The woe is me as well, like canceling important events in your life right. that you can't attend because of multiple reasons, whether it's bathroom related or not. And it wasn't until I actually started talking to somebody about my mental health. And I always thought like my anxiety was just I'm an anxious person, uh -huh. you know, but it was quite multiplied with my IBD. Uh -huh. You know, in hindsight, I wish I went right away. I wish when my diagnosis and my prescription came for IBD, it came with a mental health, you know, that referral nice. as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you live and learn. Um, and now I take my mental health very seriously. Like mm -hmm. I said, it's my number one trigger. It's not food for me. Um, I would say it's the mental stress and then environmental stress, like change of seasons or big things seem to upset me the most. Um, but That's one of the things Dr. Bernstein is teaching when yeah. he goes around the country and gives talks is that every gastroenterologist should be trained or should be comfortable screening people for mental health issues. Right. 
um, at least asking the questions that you need to ask to get a sense for what's happening does in this, this person's person life. Need a referral, and, yeah. Right. Does this person, yeah. Now that's the problem is a lot of gastroenterologists come back at, with, you know, well, okay, I know this person needs help. What do I do about it? There's nobody available out there to help. Right. Them. So that's more the health system side of things that has to right. be addressed. But at least the gastroenterologists need to be aware this is an issue and screen for it and advocate for more more services. But even like support groups that Crohn's and Colitis Canada offers, like that <laughs> was, I will say that was actually, I'm going to call it a mental health therapy for me because it was, that yeah. was my first time. I stepped into a Crohn's and Colitis Canada chapter meeting in Durham region. Uh-huh. I heard a whole, it was like a support group. I heard a whole bunch of other people talking about living with IBD and I thought, oh my gosh, uh-huh. there's yeah. more of me, uh-huh. you know, and I left with my cup filled, even though the conversations were difficult and they were hard. It was still, I'm not alone. There are other people who understand what I'm going through. Even that was helpful for my mental and emotional health. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. support groups aren't for everybody. No, so definitely I, you know, not. Well, I'm the father of a teenage boy, and I guarantee you a support group would not be in his future <laughs> no matter what. Uh, but, you know, even a podcast like this, I'm sure helps people. It's yeah. just I wish that I could give them resources to say, all right, here are the expert psychologists that you can go to right. who will help you. Uh, there just aren't enough out there right now. So I feel like though Dr. Benchwell is the same thing with GIs. We, you know, not enough GIs and growing number of IBD, just this this strain on the healthcare. If anybody is thinking of a post-secondary education <laughs> career, <laughs> yeah, moving into the healthcare. <laughs> yeah. Kate, you were going to say I, something? I was just going to add, um, you know, um, Dr. Um, Bernstein and Graf, they are working on a me- mental health resources for gastroenterologists. So clinicians who are specialized in IBD. So it's not only for gastroenterologists, but our wonderful IBD nurses who work with oh, the gastroenterologists. We love them. Hospital. We love them. Yes, yes. absolutely. Uh, it's only we had more of them. Yes. Um, but I think this also speaks to... Um, you know, what I've heard is, as um, Eric, you said, is GIs, they haven't been trained in this. And so they don't know how to, and that's one of the fears that they have. How do I treat, a, how do I recognize, how do I treat? So right. I would say this is the first step. Absolutely. Trying to find a, some sort of a solution to support the gastroenterologist and at least recognizing when their patient needs professional support. But I think that's the first step. Yeah. We need to do more. We need to be, as we said, we need that multidisciplinary care. And as Dr. Benchmol said, we absolutely need to think about mental health support for IBD patients. It should be a must. It's not only about uh, physiologically what the gastroenterologists take care of and, and our IBD nurses, but it's also about mental health. I think just recognizing the symptoms, asking the right questions to to see, to gauge where a patient is. Yeah. That alone to me as a patient is a huge step. Uh-huh. It was not done before, right? So, so when you were diagnosed, I assume your doctor didn't ask anything about your mental health. No, nothing. nothing. My diagnosis was written on the prescription paper. That's a story for another day. Yeah. Um, so that was a whole other experience. But again, there wasn't much about known at that time. I'm 16 and a half years in. You yeah, know, I googled that- it. Doctor Google's not the best place to go, obviously. But no, it was. There was no conversation about mental health at all. Right. Like it just wasn't a thing. But there was there's also been that stigma of mental health as well. Like it's not just not talking about it in the IBD world. It's mm-hmm. been not talking about it Absolutely. in the world. Yeah. Right? That's changing. I yeah, think yes, that it, it really is. It's is getting changing. much better, which is fantastic. But it's also scary to see the numbers and the people that have really been living with 
such significant mental health issues coupled uh-huh. with other things. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to take it back to pediatrics because we have you and you are the sick kids gastroenterologist guy. So here you are. Um, but obviously there's lots being done in Canada with pediatrics and IBD. Um, what are some of the key challenges though moving forward with pediatrics and IBD? Yeah, I mean, there's a few. I mean, firstly, that that very early onset group, I think, is a big challenge in terms of understanding what's happening and why. Like why are they yeah, being? Yeah, there's okay. a certain proportion that have a single gene mutation, so one gene that causes the disease. Okay. It's a small number, a very small number, but those patients are really, really sick and they aren't treatable with our traditional therapies. So there's a group uh, led by Dr. Alex Muse at SickKids called Neopix that's trying to investigate those single gene mutations and try to understand, first of all, some of these patients get better with bone marrow transplants, which is a big deal. Wow. Yeah, you can actually fix their problem. But then also there are drugs out there to treat very specific parts of the immune system. And that leads to the idea of precision medicine, right? So that perhaps we can find the right drug for the right person at the right time. If they have a certain genetic profile or a certain protein profile, maybe we'll know that they'll respond to the anti-TNF biologics. Right. If they have another, maybe we would go to the different, like the ustekinumab, the anti-IL-12, anti-IL-23 biologics. Uh, So that idea of precision medicine, finding the right treatment for one person is very new. And it's something that I think pediatrics is leading in terms of the research into that area. And Crohn's and Colitis Canada, that's going to be one of their foci going to say focuses, but foci over the next few years uh, when it comes to research. So that's issue number one that's being driven, I think, by pediatrics first. Um, Issue number two is the lack of drugs, the lack of choice. I was just going to say, you mentioned anti-TNF and like certain drugs are flipping up in my mind, you know, are they all approved? No. Right. So only anti-TNFs are approved for pediatric IBD by Health Canada. Okay. And so those are the only ones that, you know, the the drug benefits programs from every province and the insurance companies will pay for. Uh, And the reason for that is the way pharmaceutical companies work, particularly in the US, is they're going to do the trials first in adults, both because it's safer and it's a bigger population. Of course. They want their approval from the FDA and Health Canada. And then after they get their market in adults, they will go and study pediatrics, children. And then so there's everything always is delayed delay. yeah, by five to 10 years, unfortunately. So we're very fortunate that for many of these drugs, not all, we have good relationships with the pharmaceutical companies who have established a compassionate use program. So we can access some of the newer medications through that program that Health Canada approves. Uh, because we know that they do work in pediatrics as well, but they we're just waiting for the trial results and the Health Canada approval. So, but, you know, if you're not in the right place at the right time, you may not have access to the same medications as everybody else. And all of these new medications that are coming out, some of the small molecules that have come out in the past six months, the newer biologics, none of those are available to pediatrics at all. So, and we have a rising number. Yeah. We do have a rising number. Yeah. So, we need to concern. really advocate for quicker trials, better trials. For example, we could include teenagers as part of the adult trials. Right. You know, the older teenagers are the same size. So Dr. Benjamin, if if teenagers are included, does that automatically do pediatrics? Well, not all of pediatrics, but but at least, you know, if you included everybody over the age of 14, the FDA would approve the drug for everybody over the age of 14. So that would be a start. So it's getting closer. Yeah, that would be a start. And I think the drug companies are starting to do that in the U.S. Um, but really, we also need to work with the regulators, the FDA and Health Canada, to try to drive 
the pharmaceutical industry to really do these trials quicker and better and and earlier in the course of the the approval of for drugs. Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done. And then I should say that Gosh. we need, you know, with the drugs that we have, we need to understand how to use them better. Okay. So in children, in, in children, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Okay. So we've learned a lot over the last 20 years of using the anti-TNF biologics. And I should say the anti-TNF biologics, people may know with the brand names, Remicade, Humira, Humira, right. you know, Amjavida now and Flectra, all the biosimilars. Um, those, the way we use them now is completely different than the way we used them 20, 25 years ago in that we know now that we need to monitor the levels in the blood. If they're not responding, we need to check the levels and make sure that we're actually giving enough drug. Right. Because if not enough is sticking around in your body, it's not going to work. Right. Uh, also, we know that in certain conditions like acute severe ulcerative colitis, the patients who are admitted to hospital, which really is a large number of our new diagnoses of ulcerative colitis in children, those patients need much bigger doses of the anti-TNF biologics at the beginning. And then we can back off once like they're heavier in remission. loading doses. Yeah, like double or triple the dose okay. sometimes. And that is more government related in terms of approval. It can be. Yeah, it yeah. can be. So some of the government agencies that fund the drugs and the, the, the insurance companies are working off the data from the trials from 2005 uh-huh. in pediatrics. And now we're it using, is 2023, yeah, we're using things completely <laughs> different. So um, again, we're fortunate to have great relationships with the pharmaceutical companies where if the insurance company doesn't cover a dose, then the the company the pharmaceutical company will yeah like the patient care eventually the yeah. Pa- yeah the patient will get the medication that we need but again you need to know to ask for that and if you're in rural Ontario or rural Manitoba and you don't have access to a specialist pediatric IBD you doctor wouldn't you wouldn't know to ask and again you had mentioned data like government yeah. policy needing data so the fact that this report as as awful and heartbreaking as it is to see that the rates are rising in children under the age of six. That data is on paper now. Mm-hmm. They're like, don't deny what we're coming to you for. Yeah. Like, listen, look, yeah. you know? Absolutely. Uh, one thing I wanted to add um, to what Dr. Benchmol said about, um, you know, challenges of um, taking care of children who have IBD in terms of lack of access to medications because there's a delay and we do need to advocate for pharmaceutical companies to um, conduct their clinical trials faster. There's another aspect, unfortunately, in Canada, which is the drug approval process. Mm. That's yes. something that we don't really, uh, the scientists didn't necessarily touch upon on the impact report, but it's very well known. We're very far behind. Um, it's a on, very lengthy process. It's a very lengthy process. So I don't know if, Chantal, you've had a podcast on that. But we have talked about it. Many people, patients okay. have come in here there with hats go. on knowing. and But yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. But definitely share some more about on it. On average, it takes two years from when Health Canada approves a drug or to be on the um, covered by the provincial company, uh, provincial formularies and as well as the private insurers. Right. And then so you mentioned, Dr. Benchmol, it's like provincial. Yeah. Like it could be in one province and not here yet. Exactly. Right? Like in Ontario. Yeah. That's that's the other thing. There might be drugs that uh, we talk. There's a lot of um, biologics out there right now, but not all, all biologics that are approved in Ontario. Right. That might have been approved in Quebec. Right. To treat IBD. So, and that really speaks to the um, the differences and the dichotomy. And so, depending on where you live, you might not be get, getting access to all the possible treatment options that are out there. And you know, that's not that's just not an IBD, unfortunately. Like no, that's it's across, not. yeah. You know, chronic health, right? Long term health, cancer, same thing. The, yeah. The differences between provinces. Hearing of patients who literally move to another province because of 
access to care. Yep. You know, or or hearing that um, a medication is available in the U.S. or in Europe and is not here yet in Canada. And yes. The frustration that comes with that, especially if you are very ill, mm-hmm. you know, and you have severe disease, it's 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 tough. Yeah. I, I the reason I brought it up is um, as you very well know, Chantal, and you know that we do have a chop chapter on treatment options and in there they do talk about different treatments that are available now and the ones that are upcoming so it's good news we have more drugs that are going through the process of being approved by Health Canada and so forth but having said that right now we still are struggling as Eric said in pediatrics they even have less but still in generally in IBD we don't have as many treatment options uh, yeah. for IBD patients, and you very well know that I as well. advocated, yes, yes. I've <laughs> I'm big about that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's another reason why we need to try to figure out ways to really ensure that whatever drugs have been approved by Health Canada, how do we ensure that all pro- provinces approve it so that Getting all IBD equally. patients... Yep, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So considering we're talking about medications and, and drug companies and things like that, you, I think, Dr. Mitchell, you mentioned at the beginning of podcast... Um, the cost of these medications is quite intense. Um, biologics, biosimilars, biosimilars are a bit cheaper, bio, but they're just, they're not inexpensive. We'll say that. Here. Um, I personally take Antivio. It's about $3,700 every eight weeks, mm-hmm. right? Did, these are very expensive drugs. Is this sustainable? Like these yeah. drugs are helpful. It's knock on wood. It is making a world of difference for me. But is the price sustainable? How do we propose governments, insurance companies? How are we going to manage this? Because we need them. Yeah. With a growing population, we need better treatments to prevent people from being in hospital, having surgery, those types of things. But the things we need are also expensive. We are not cheap. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I think it's a tough question to answer. And we tried to get that uh, that in the report is is that if you look at it only from the the lens of what we call direct healthcare costs. Right. This drug costs this much. Right. And saves you this much in hospitalizations and surgeries. This is not a cost efficient drug. Right. So these drugs will never show that you're saving money by using them. Uh, But we also, and we don't understand this yet, we, we haven't done enough research in this yet. We need to understand how these drugs affect the overall economy, not just the health system. So that right. means time off work, right? Uh-huh. Are For you both working? caregivers and patients, right. exactly. And we have yep. shown that IBD affects your ability to work, and you're more likely to retire early. You're more likely to be employed, and you're more likely to miss work as a result of the, the disease. So, right, we need to understand how these drugs impact all of that. Right, you know out-of-pocket expenses, your family members driving you and missing work, things like that. Uh, and so we don't know really, are these drugs cost-efficient or not? Right. Even if they're not, I mean, there's something to be said for quality of life, right? So Absolutely. clearly these drugs are helping with quality of life and we need to acknowledge that. Like as a patient, I'm like, but this is my life. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah like, no, absolutely. for sure. You're putting a dollar amount on my life I mean, like this, you know? <laughs> it, and it's revolutionized how paid the quality of the patients absolutely. live with. I mean, in the past 25 years, it's it's amazing. But so we need to figure that out. And if they're expensive, if they still are costing our economy money, we need to figure out how to use them better. Um, so part of that solution is biosimilars. Biosimilars mm-hmm. do are at about 60% of the cost of the original biologics. So they do help. But I think it's not enough. Even biosimilars, you're never going to show that they're cost efficient. Right. I think that 
trying to understand which drug should target which person, which molecule goes to what type of biology, uh, what will make people feel better quickest, and what drug is least likely to fail for a patient is part of the strategy of reducing costs. So understanding, again, that precision medicine, that precision health approach, where the right drug for the right person at the right time is going to reduce waste. So we're not going to burn through like five biologics before we finally find the one that works for that person. Right. We target. We target. And I think that will help with things as well. I think too, like it's, it's not, yeah, like our caregivers, like I'm an adult, but when I'm unwell, my husband has to take time off work as well as myself to help me with things to go places. So I'm I'm glad you you mentioned that as well. It's not just about the cost of the medication. It's not just about how much, you know, it costs for us to be hospitalized when we're flaring. Not just about the cost of surgery. There are so many components. Uh-huh. And then because IBD is so multifaceted and it affects all components of the body, then now we're talking about the need for mental health support. And and that's that's not cheap. All of this is expensive. Yeah. So if we can manage IBD with biologics or biosimilars, even though they are more expensive, I, I know the report's not out there yet. I cannot see it being more expensive. Like that has to be a better way to treat. Don't even get yeah. me started on the fact that it's just quality of life <laughs> and we deserve it. <laughs> yeah. I, and I think that, yeah, I mean, I, and then you do get policymakers who in the end are trying to balance a budget, yeah, are trying line. to figure out bottom line. Yeah. That patient voice is really important. Right. If people like you are speaking up and saying, this is helping me, this has changed my life. Right. What do you mean it's too expensive? I'm using air quotes for the people who are listening. Just listening. Um, (laughs) You know, I think that that patient voice has to be heard and and politicians certainly hear that voice, right? They do recognize it as important to their careers. So it's not as simple as dollars and cents to a lot of politicians. Well, I'm a voter. Yeah. Absolutely. And Kate Absolutely. knows, Kate, you know, I marched myself into the, my local MPP's office not too long ago to advocate about this exact and he listened. topic. He did, actually. And he promised to take action, right? <laughs> yes. yes. He did, actually. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to add to that is in terms of the, um, the costs of, and correct me if I misunderstood the report, This, as I said, I'm still reading the report, but... Um, one of the main drivers of our rising direct healthcare costs is drugs. The biologics yep. is a major driver, and we just talked about that. And as you said, Eric, biosimilars are going to significantly reduce that cost. I'm not quite sure whether it's. I think it's going to decrease the uh, the numbers and the significant the direct healthcare costs. Um, the question, though, is right now all these provincial company, um, sorry, provinces are mandating that all IBD patients switch to biosimilars yeah. um, to drive down the cost mm-hmm. of drugs. And we fully support that. Um, but having said that, we do know through consultations um, with our ex- experts, our researchers such as Dr. Benchmo, that the evidence isn't necessarily um, so clear-cut that it's no. going to be okay for all IBD patients if they're switched from a innovator biologic like Humira or Remicade into their biosimilar. So um, in order to support the and the governments with this policy, um, Chantel, you were part of that group. Yes. Right? I was going to say, are we talking about the decision yes, matrix right are. now? Yes, we are. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so Crohn's and Colitis Canada hosted uh, a number of meetings. It was actually co-chaired by Dr. Eric Benjamin and Dr. Yes. Jennifer Jones from Dalhousie University, where we brought together um, the foremost IBD experts from across Canada, 
We brought our patient partners such as yourself, Chantal. Yes, I was one of them guys. I was all over that. <laughs> <laughs> and you had a lot of great input into that, right? I had a lot to say. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and we developed the decision matrix. That's right. That is supposed to help the governments uh, make decisions. And uh, co- with this decision matrix, I don't know if, um, Eric, you want to talk a little bit more about it. Um, you know, the conclusion was the majority of the IBD patients probably will be switched uh, and they will be fine. Yeah. But there will be a certain percentage, a That's small right. percentage that won't do well. So the idea is, yes, we fully support the um, cost savings measures uh, and they can, you know, Crohn's and, colitis can, and uh, Crohn's and colitis patients can be switched. But there are a certain percentage that we need to be mindful of. Yeah. And to um, to try to protect them and to say that the risks are too great. We talked about quality of life, the impact it's going to have on them if they get switched and they, they don't respond. It's it's too big a risk for yeah. us to switch them. And I think my involvement, I think it was like 18 months. I think we worked on this. Yes, right? it was, it was 18 a long, yeah. months. Yeah. Um, that was what my key point was. And, and I'm glad that you said, you know, Crohn's and Colitis Canada's stance is not we're against biosimilars. As a patient, I will say, and the patients I've spoken to, we are not against a switch to biosimilars. Under no circumstances no. are we against this. We believe we we look at the data. It shows that it's going to be okay for us. That's great. But as you mentioned, professionals have come to the conclusion there there is a small group of people who, when switched to biosimilars, will not have a successful transition. And it's those patients that the decision matrix is set out to protect. And you know, if we even want to look at bottom dollar cost, you know, if we're taking a patient who is in remission for a few years and has switched to a biosimilar, but, you know, is in within the high risk category. And then they flare, they be, you're, the disease becomes active again, they become very ill. And then they're going into the system of being hospitalized, possible surgeries, extra medications. This becomes, at the end of the day, quite expensive if we're literally going to talk about bottom line, put quality of life out the window. So it's really under making you know, the biosimilar companies understand that, and and government, that this is not a blanket switch. It will be for a large group of people, but the small subset we need to protect, not only for the benefit of the patient, but also the benefit of the economy, uh-huh. quite literally, uh-huh. yeah. you know? Yeah, and the studies are showing that it's probably, in IVD specifically, it's probably in the range of 10 to 15% experience a flare right. as measured in those studies. And we okay. can talk about how that measured, but a flare after a switch, all right, compared okay. to people who don't switch, uh, which is not a huge number, but the key is identifying again who those 10 to 15% right. are. Mm-hmm. And for the patients who the impact of a flare would be massive. Oh my gosh. So pregnant women, children with families who are supporting them, uh, people with per- severe pain or perianal or fistulizing disease, it's just not worth the 60% or the 40% savings. I yeah. can't imagine being one of those patients with significant things like, and then the, we were talking about mental health. The Lack thought, of options. The yeah. thought you, that I may be switched to a biosimilar and what could happen to me knowing like, I'm high risk, then what what happens then if the biosimilar doesn't work? Am I able to go back to my biologic? Have I? Am I not able to go back? Where do I go from here? You know, the lack of options, everything coming through the pipeline and taking longer in Canada, am I at? the end right now like you know yeah. there's it's it's very multifaceted mm-hmm. um and so we're, we're trying to work with governments to try to get them to understand that i mean it's a bit a bit of a tough tough slog i mean some provinces have certain rules other provinces have different rules you know they're picking and choosing i guess of certain different parts 
right. uh, whether it's exempting pediatrics, children until they're 18 in some provinces, but not others. Okay. Exempting pregnant women in some provinces, but not others. You know, it's been, it's been difficult, but I think, again, the key is, you know, the right person, making sure that you're doing this for the right person so that you don't take the risk of, you know, leading to a massive impact on quality of life. Well, you were talking about precision yeah. medicine, yeah. right? And and if that's if that's going to be the answer to a lot of the problems, for, no matter which way you look at it, a, a, a forced switch without thinking about the individual patient exactly yeah. is yeah. the opposite. Is the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. The exact opposite. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So for the Ontarians who are, um, who are listening, uh, we are going through the switch now. Uh, yes, we are. Uh, as we know. And um, for those who aren't aware, on our website, we do have the decision matrix there. So yes. uh, it's, I hope, uh, easily understandable. Chantal, I don't know whether um, you understood it. I think you It's very did. understandable. Very understandable. So it's, okay. It's like a two-sided graph. You, you know, you kind of like, I tell my geography students, you go to this one and you go to this one and you go to your fingers meet and you exactly. find out where you are. Yeah, where, they, where it intersects. It's yeah. also color-coded. So my lovely organization is very excited about color-coded. Um, it's also color-coded for those of you who appreciate that as much as I do. Um, but yes, if you go to Crohn'sandcolitis.ca. Uh, and you just uh, use the search function and uh, click uh, decision matrix, type in the decision matrix that you should, you should find it. Uh, take a look at it. You can see whether you fall in the category of um, being exempted or us requesting exemption. Speak to your doctor about it. Absolutely. Because your doctor may not even be aware that um, that we've done our best to raise awareness amongst the gastroenterologists and the specialists about this decision matrix. But there is a chance that the gastroenterologist that you're being taken care of might not be aware of it. You and can that, print it. Exactly. Everybody knows I'm very big about bringing your paper and your questions and your pencil. So you can print it. You can show them. That being said, that so being here we said, have Dr. Yeah, Dr. Mitchell. The gastroenterologist may have no choice, right? right. We have to understand Abs- that. Yes, that it's this is not. a decision at the ministry level and we can't really change that. So for example, I'd love for all my pediatric patients not to have to switch. The reality Which is, is what they we have advocated to switch, for in the but, decision yeah. matrix. Yeah. But what we can do is monitor more carefully, you Absolutely. know, check the levels a little bit more in your blood to make sure that they haven't dropped or nothing has changed. So there's ways that the gastroenterologist can monitor to make sure that you're not having any problems. Absolutely. But that being said, uh, we have spoken to, as Eric said, we have, we've had a, held multiple meetings with the government. And so they are aware of our decision matrix. Then they have it. And so... Yes, I gave it to them too. Yes, that's fa- fabulous. <laughs> I so emailed and printed it. <laughs> <laughs> Every way possible. I was like, you cannot escape me. <laughs> <laughs> so they have it. And so um, if your gastroenterologist, they do apply formally for an exemption, they will see it coming in. Okay. If you don't ask for it, they won't give it. Right. That okay. That's the way the government will be working on. So, okay. So um, as Eric said, it's beyond the gastroenterologist's control. The Absolutely. decision is uh, up to the government, but you never know. If you don't ask it, you'll, you won't get it. Yeah. Or if that doesn't work, Chantel advocates for stalking your MPP. You can just yes. you can email yes. me at yes. podcast, <laughs> and I will do it for you. Just tell me what your your postal code is, and I'll just show up. Um, yeah. So, but I would though. That's not a joke. Yeah, <laughs> I believe you. I've okay. seen you in action. I will go where I need to go. Yeah. Um. So you know, Crohn's and colitis is is take. We want people to take notice of IBD. As a patient with IBD, I am definitely like pay attention to us, right? But there are so many other health conditions in Canada mm-hmm. that are 
fighting, I should say, for uh-huh. that for that same spot. You know, why pay attention to us? Or, you know, my answer to that is pay attention to all of us. Uh-huh. You yeah. know? Yeah. So I can You're start. Like, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think um, the first answer to that is up to a half a million people living with IBD by 2035. It's in the report. It's in the report <laughs> and very expensive medications and a huge impact on the health system. And so people ha- will have no choice but to pay attention. I think that's that's the first point. But honestly, I think, you know, there's a lot in common wi- with IBD and, and other chronic diseases, particularly what we call the IMIDs, the immune-mediated inflammatory diseases. Which are? So those are diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, like... Um, MS, like psoriasis. Lupus is lupus is one of them. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So these are all diseases where the immune system is kind of out of control, causing inflammation. And a lot there's a very a lot of similarities between the treatments too, right? They also have biologics, and they're even with rheumatoid arthritis, they use they, the anti CNFs for yeah. sure. Um, and if you're more likely to have one, if you you if you have one disease of that group, you're more likely to have other diseases of that group. Also. So yeah. So <laughs> unfortunately, so I think that. You know, it's important. This is sort of, I think, I hope, will be a model that other disease advocacy groups can work with and other health foundations can work with. And my hope is that we're all going to be able to get together and work together towards the common goal of understanding why these diseases are increasing in Canada, why Canada has one of the highest rates in the world of many of the IBD, MS, and other things, and try to prevent them, find a cure, and prevent them from happening in the first place. So this is sort of our way of putting that put forward to the other health charities as well. And I guess, um, Eric, you said the key word that I was going to say, which is prevention. Mm -hmm. I think um, it's on the rise um, and we need to take action now before it becomes even a greater burden to to Canada, to our governments. So, um, you know, we've CCC with our uh, community, with clinicians such as Dr. Benjamin, we've been working on a lot of solutions. And it's a way for us to um, present to the government, and I'm talking about our PACE program again. Yeah, There's a lot of solutions that we're trying to develop that can help with um, improving the quality of life, improving the health of IBD patients. And by improving their and their and um, their the health of the IBD patients, it's a way of reducing the burden Absolutely. on the healthcare system. With the growing numbers, 2035, was it 470,000? Mm-hmm. We need to be proactive instead of reactive. Exactly. Yeah. Like if we don't start doing something now, we see it. It's happening. It's it's yes. like, you know, places who see that they're going to have a significant senior population and they don't know. put the funding into the fact that they're going to need resources for senior people. Absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. We need to be proactive and not reactive. And especially considering being reactive for diseases that are so extensive. Uh-huh. What does that mean for the lives of patients? Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think no discussion about preventing the disease would be complete without discussing the GEM project, which clearly Chronic Canada had a huge role in starting and funding. We also did an episode years ago yeah, about the about GEM project. It. So it's still going strong. Very dear to my heart as well. We had... Um, Dr. Carter. Yes. The lead investigator? No, he did not come, but we had um, some youth patients. They're not youth uh, anymore. Okay. Um, Participants of the yes, study. Yes. One okay. of them who had been diagnosed with Crohn's disease, they were following his brother. Mm-hmm. In the study, his brother was one of the people who were also diagnosed yeah. like, with IBD. Yeah. And I was just like, like your data is... Until yeah. I think <laughs> it's time for you to invite Dr. Couture <laughs> to, to your 
talk podcast. There's Dr. Katuro, um, this is your official invite. Got yes. some glory. Would love to have you. I will send Kate Lee and Dr. Benchmal after you. <laughs> uh, no pressure. No so, pressure. No pressure. I, I, it's been, I think, about 10 years since the project started, right? And and the idea years. just to refresh 15 years, 15 yeah. years. I'm wow. Old, Has old. it been that long? Yeah. Yes, time flies. I'm aging. Yeah. <laughs> So, <laughs> you know, you remember the beginning. I remember it, it really is starting to bear fruit now in that we've got in the in the project. How many have converted to? We have over 100 who have converted. Right. Out so of the, what was it? 4,000? 5,000 recruited okay. of healthy first degree relatives of people with Crohn's disease who then subsequently developed Crohn's disease. This is like data you will like this is. Yeah. Of data. And so we're this really is. starting to understand what's different about them. Right? right. So what is different about their biology? What is different about their microbiome, their gut bacteria yes. that may predict whether or not they develop Crohn's disease. And then eventually, once we understand that, we may be able to develop ways of preventing the disease in people who are at high risk. Yeah. So changing their diet or changing their environment. One of the findings that everybody quotes is dogs like uh, so it seems <laughs> oh, like no, dogs are protect, protective protective against the development yeah. of i have a dog, a dog yeah. but That's i just great. got him too, a year and three oh, months ago yeah a little too he late he should have been here 16 and a half years ago <laughs> yes exactly. Made the difference. exactly yeah. now whether that turns out to be true or not we don't know but that was one of the findings so what i did not hear of this this is very yeah, exciting so that's the idea, right? Is if we are able to identify the environmental risk factors, we can change the environment of people who are at high risk and prevent it from happening in the my first place. My goodness, and I'm going home and telling my husband we need to adopt more. You should. Absolutely. I'm not going to tell him that it's the preventative part. He doesn't need to know that. It's, it fixes your <laughs> I'm going to tell him it, it fixes, fixes it. It <laughs> yes, fixes exactly. it. We need to get a dog. More dogs. All the dogs. <laughs> what I was going to say is um, this is what we call a longitudinal study. And because of that, what we mean is as Eric said, we had to wait for, unfortunately, yes. some of the healthy uh, relatives to develop the disease. We can't do this so, in a couple of years. Exactly. It was yeah. a waiting game, hence why it took so long. But now is the exciting time. They're actually using the data of the 105 people who have um, <laughs> developed disease, and they're starting to identify things. Things that happened before they developed the symptoms, and, and that's where how they can identify what is cause and what is effect. And so it's really perfect timing. This is Chantel. exciting time right now. This is a very exciting time. It, yeah, is. it is. Absolutely. This, will ha this is a whole other episode. It is. The findings of the GEM study. Yes. It's Maybe not with us. <laughs> not the right <laughs> with, people. With but... somebody. It's definitely going to be. So, yeah. oh my gosh. Now my, my hamster wheel is just like, like spinning around. So there are more people in Canada with IBD than ever before. Many people are being diagnosed here. Do we know why? No that's pressure a, if you don't know the answer to this that's question. A Honestly, yeah. that's a we, we truly don't know why. Right. Uh, we but don't it, that know needs why. to be said then. We don't know why. Yeah, that, that's one of the fields of research that I do is to try to understand what environmental factors may be predisposing people to the development of IBD. And I don't think it's just environmental factors. So right. genetics wise, we found over 200 different genes that increase your chances of developing IBD. But most of those genes only increase your chance a very, very small amount. So lots of people walking around with the genes for Crohn's and colitis they who don't never have. get the disease. Okay. So that's not the number one. It, well, yeah, no, it's not the number one. But something environmental is likely activating it. So I think okay. this idea of people who come from low prevalent countries where okay. IBD is much more rare to Canada and understand why they develop IBD. So for yeah, example- Something in the 2018 report was about first generation Canadians yeah. as well, I think, yeah. I remember. Yeah, so people from certain regions, when they come to Canada, they have low rates of developing IBD. 
but their children who are born in Canada have much higher rates and have the same rates as, as non-immigrant Canadians. Okay. For example, people from South Asia, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and those groups, we're seeing very large populations develop IBD now. Um, and in Canada. In Canada. And in their home countries, Not rates so are much. much, much lower. They're growing now, but they're much, much lower Dr. than they Bunch are in Canada. Is it like a hemisphere thing? Yeah. Okay. So something about the Canadian environment is clearly triggering genes that are probably there to really begin with. It really is lovely here. It is. It is. I <laughs> so, agree. Hemisphere thing. So northern countries have higher rates than southern countries. Okay. Not sure why. Is it sunlight, vitamin D? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. We don't know anything about that yet. Um, sort of, we know that Western nations have higher rates than sort of developed low and middle, middle income countries have quite low rates. So is that food cleanliness, right? Uh, right. the diet, hygiene hypothesis, yep. is it diet? Is it the Western diet, diet that's high in animal fats instead of, you know, fish oils, vegetables, right. we don't quite know yet. It seems to be, or are there other environmental factors? The one, the environmental factors, yeah, yep. the environmental factors that we've been able to identify are things like. Uh, smoking cigarettes. Yes. Obviously, most children don't smoke. Right. Um, so that, but do, that does increase your chance of developing IBD. Early life antibiotics. Uh, it's possible that living in a greener environment protects you from developing IBD. So living in a region where there's more parkland, more green space. Um, farm. Well, yeah, I grew up in a farm, bro, and yeah. I had antibiotics farm. from the moment I came out of the womb. So yeah. Yeah. two of those things are like, oh, yeah, okay. So but all of that, what that has in common, what those things have in common is that they change the microbiome, they change the gut bacteria, right. and it's really hard to change the microbiome permanently later in your life. So it's probably something that happened early in the life, which changed your microbiome, just manifested which itself. later in your life triggers your immune system right. in people who are genetically at risk. I remember seeing this like Venn diagram of like a uh-huh. combination of yeah. like your microbiome, the environment, a whole, and everything coming together in, in the host. Yeah. You know, and this beautiful person, the host, and then pop. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's, so, so it's not a one answer. No, and there it's probably a isn't one answer. Yeah. But you can imagine a world where maybe people who are at higher risk are put on a certain diet that changes the microbiome back to being something good and prevents the disease later on. Or maybe we find out that more green space is healthier for people. Oh my gosh, now we can lobby even more with our city developers. For sure, it prevents asthma, it prevents lots of diseases. Maybe advocating for urban planning so that we have more green space available to our children might be a way that we prevent all of these diseases together. So I think we're working on it. it. We're a little ways away of being able to prevent the disease in the same way that we're we're not quite there when it comes to a cure. But I think there's a lot of research going on, and the impact report really tries to describe what's what we've done in Canada to understand this. My parents live in small rural Newfoundland, and my mom and my dad are always, you just need to come to Newfoundland. I think they're right. And you'll feel better. You know, I'm yeah. not going to let them listen to that section that Dr. <laughs> Benchmall just said. So yeah. you'll the be other thing is, that out. for better or worse, Nova Scotia and Newfoundland That's have true. the highest rates of IBD yeah. in Canada. Beautiful. They can listen then. Why? Look, we Ma. have no idea. Like, <laughs> we have no idea why. But right. it seems like the East Coast has very high rates of IBD. Especially for such a small population. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're not sure why. I wonder whether we can talk a little bit about diet as well, because mm-hmm. I know that's something big uh, for people. Who Definitely. Are, and um, triggers and so forth. I, I was really not necessarily in the impact report, but um, just Dr. Benchmall, I'm sure you can add a lot more to this. But 
I attended a research conference where there was a huge area of um, scientists who were focused in this area, diet and nutrition, uh-huh. how it impacts IBD and so forth. And I would say they've made a lot of inroads in mm-hmm. this area. So I don't know. I've been um, hearing rumblings of the Mediterranean diet uh, yeah. or studies, I should say, of studies the Mediterranean diet. Studies going on, diet. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yes. So Not that it's the answer. But yeah. they're looking at it. Back when I was training, uh, the one diet that we knew worked was something called exclusive enteral nutrition in children, which okay. means that they're on a complete tube feed diet. Okay. Tube feed formula they can drink or through a nasogastric tube. And they do that for six to eight weeks. And that puts them in remission pretty well as well as steroids does. Wow. So that works and really way well. Better and again, than now we know, we didn't understand why back then. Now we understand probably it's resetting your microbiome back to a normal, healthy state. Right. The problem is as soon as you start eating your regular right. diet again, your microbiome gets back to the way again. it was and you flare up. Right. So you still need medications. Uh, the next step was trying to understand what foods might make your microbiome go back to the way it was. And so something was developed called the Crohn's disease exclusion diet, mm-hmm. CDED, where you remove some pro-inflammatory foods. And in fact, if you mix that with the tube feeds, 50%, tube feeds, 50% Crohn's disease exclusion diet, so you can actually eat food, you go into remission pretty well as well as the exclusive tube feeds. And they've done a lot of work, and it was actually led by Canadians, including Eitan Wine in Edmonton, um, to try to understand what the microbiome changes are happening. And now we're starting to see that maybe you don't need the tube feeds at all. Maybe Crohn's disease exclusion diet is enough. But again, we're left with, it's a very tough diet to follow for the rest of I your life. I was just going to so, say, especially when this is in kids, they can't have chicken yeah. nuggets. Yeah. No. Well, you that's know? probably a good <laughs> thing, but yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so, you know, is it and a lifelong su- thing? We I was don't just going to say, is this tough. a sustainable yeah, diet? Yeah, it's very tough. Yeah. But at least it's helping us understand what we might have to modify in, t- in order to make the microbiome back to a normal, healthy state. Uh, the Mediterranean diet is not clear. Yeah. We know that people in Mediterranean countries have lower rates of IBD. Is that diet potentially? Maybe that's why we started to think about Yeah, the there was a trial Absolutely. that just came out that compared the Mediterranean diet to something called the specific carbohydrate diet. Yes. And they performed exactly the same. And neither group really got better when you measured their inflammatory right. markers, like fecal calprotectin. But so, you had said, you know, it's not just one thing. It, I, yeah. I think it just, it can't just be what I eat. No. No. So I like, think the future then again is the precision medicine thing. Absolutely. So trying to understand exactly what one person, what their microbiome profile is, uh, and then modify it specifically to fix the underlying problem. <laughs> so there are trials now going on where uh, one person will be fed a specific food or starch, for example, that they need in order to get their microbiome profile back to the way it was. Uh, and there's a, study, a clinical trial being run out of Ottawa right now, David Mack and Alain Stinzi, uh, which you know I think is the future where you're going to be able to modify that for the specific person and everybody's different. And so throwing a full diet at somebody may help some people, but not others. Right. I think we need to be a little bit more specific. And I've, and I might... I've played with quite a few diets and, and it hasn't been as wonderful for me but again it was doing that in isolation yeah and i don't think anything with ibd is effective in isolation no i agree i was just going to add um to the gem project in terms of on the adult Mm -hmm. side um i know dr benchmal you were talking about children mostly on the adult side the gem project has what we call an ancillary project so something on the side that uses uh the gem um, participants and he is running a um a diet study in um 
in partnership with a scientist from um, Israel, Dr. Dan Turner. So Who trained um, in Canada, by the way. Trained in Canada as a kid. And then left. And yeah, then well, left. He went home. Exactly. He went home. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he went home. Yeah, okay. Was home, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so it's ongoing right now. So there's a lot of other additional studies that are coming out of the GEM um, project to identify what are the different factors that are causing, as you said, there's a Venn diagram where you have to have those three components. They all clash together and that causes right. Crohn's disease. And what are those things that clash together? Right. And diet certainly is one of them. I mean, I guess... Uh, the, yeah, the, not to be ignored. Yeah. No, Dr. Dr. Turner developed a diet called the Tasty and Healthy Diet, which has well, a better name than the Crohn's disease exclusion diet, I should say. Again? Tasty and Healthy. Oh. Um, and it really is. It's an easier diet to follow. It's an easier okay. version of the Crohn's disease exclusion diet. The idea is the same. You're removing some pro-inflammatory foods, but I think we need to understand how it's affecting the microbiome in right. order to yeah. know how it works. Yeah. So before we end our episode, taking it back to we've got this... 277 page report <laughs> that has a lot of findings there's a lot of data what does Crohn's and Colitis Canada or anybody really plan to do with these recommendations what's next because uh -huh. yeah. it's not just here it is let's put it on the bookshelf oh absolutely right? not so I should say though for the listeners there is there are summaries on the Crohn's and Colitis Canada I think it's Crohn's and Colitis Canada slash Crohn's and Colitis report. Crohn's and Colitis uh, .ca slash impact report. What I do normally do is go to our homepage and just use the search function. You put yeah. an impact yeah. report. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, there's a three-page yes, summary, you, a ten-page yes. summary. Like, yeah, you'll listeners, be able to find... you do not need to do what I'm doing, which was download the whole thing, and I'm going through it on my Kobo. Um, you can get snippets and highlights. It's in bite-sized information. Absolutely. There's an executive um, summary that's about three pages long, I think, that gives right. you really a high level. Way more digestible. Yes. Um, you've also learned a lot on this episode here. So that's that's a good place to start. So yes, tell us. Back, what's next? Back to your question. Yeah. Um, so, no, this is just the beginning. Absolutely. And um, as it always is, um, so... We always look to evidence data, and not only that, but through surveys or whatnot with our uh, patient community and caregiver community. And the impact report will be a big resource for us to really ensure, are we doing the right thing? Uh, what else do we need to do? It's, it's a big source of information for our policies so our advocacy initiatives. And I'm really excited about this aspect because this is one where CCC can't do it alone. We really need to work with the extended community. Chantal, you talked about how you you proactively <laughs> reached out to your MPP and held a yeah. meeting with them. It's all of those things that together make a big impact. Right. And we've already held some really exciting conversations with um, the group that um, Eric talked about, CanGeek, which Eric is chair of, where and um, where we've talked about working together, um, absolutely, to have a, break, a bigger impact. What are the areas of so there's how many recommendations in the in the book? Seventy two recommendations, lot, yeah. I think. So let's get started. The implications. <laughs> so we'll have to narrow that down to right. uh, to the maybe the top ten or top five and identify what are the ones that we want to tackle in the short term. What are the ones that we're going to tackle in the midterm and long term? Right. We would um, love to be able to do everything overnight, but that is not realistic. Unfortunately, that's that not is a realistic, realistic approach. Exactly. Yeah. yeah so so. That's something. And the other thing that was reassuring for us um, that the 2023 Impact of IBD report um, highlighted was we're on the right path. So we talked about the PACE program. I think I said it a few times. 
And the report itself really talks about things that gaps in care, the barriers that we have right now, and the PACE program is addressing it right now. Right. So we are on the right path. And in that sense, it's reassuring. Uh, Dr. Benjamin talked about tr the transition program. Uh, it's the pilot will be concluded. We, we think now in 2025. Yeah. They're yeah. About 2025. So that's it. We're going to like, that's one that we're addressing that was uh, identified in the impact report through a And evidence. just back to what we're saying, the report now has the data that we need when we're going to government for, for policy. Like the information is there. It's been updated since 2018. It's now yes. 2023 data. Yeah. It's bleak for the future if we keep with our eyes closed and we're not being proactive. Um, yeah, it's bleak in some ways in yeah. that the numbers are rising, the burden is important, but I think it's also positive in some ways in that there's new therapies, there's Absolutely. new medications, we're recognizing what people with IBD are living through, and recognition is the first step towards addressing it, right? So I think that physicians and researchers will work towards addressing that as building on this report. Uh, we're not just going to stop with putting out the report, we're uh -huh. trying to figure out ways that we can actually make it. It will not better. be collecting dust. Yeah. No, it's not collecting dust in my house, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but this also just comes back, you know, everybody listening to the podcast, I'm always talking about being a VIP, which is what I like to refer to as a very informed patient um, and moving forward in this landscape and trying to really make sure that the IVD community is being represented in Canada and the various provinces and territories across Canada. You know, as much as I sometimes patients don't like to hear it, but I say it all the time. We have this disease. It becomes our responsibility to make sure we become a very informed patient of VIP so that we can help advocate and that we do our part to fight for our rights as patients and as caregivers and people who love us. Um, so this is just another component. You need to go to Crohn'sandcolitis.ca and look up the impact report and really just understand what it means for you as a patient, for you as a caregiver. And then what you can do to help as well. There's lots of advocacy options on Crohn's and Colitis Canada. Something as simple as putting in your name and address and it generates a letter that can be sent to your local MPP. It's quite literally a two-minute process. Um, you can personalize it, of course. You can show up on the doorstep like I do. But there's, you know, something that we can all be doing. And it really starts with making sure you understand your disease, you understand the components of it, and that you become an advocate for yourself. So before we close, is there anything else that either of you would like to add to our episode? It's like, because now you're leaving. <laughs> no, I mean, I just really like to thank you for bringing the report to light. I mean, thank I think you, you always don't want to produce something that just sits on a shelf and nobody reads. Absolutely. I think yeah. the point of this is really that patient's voice are heard. And so that I think it's, like you said, a, a very informed patient is a patient that will take care of themselves and help doctors take care of them. That's right. So I think this sort of podcast and this sort of exposure to the impact report, I think is, is huge. Thank we you. Really that means a lot, Dr. Benjamin. Thank you very much. Yeah. And thank you as well um, for inviting me. I think it's my first time here. I know. And we go so, way back, Kate. I know. Way back. I know. Six years. Right. So, Gosh, no, you'd more than longer, six years. Longer than yes, that. Yes, I met like, you before I joined Close yes, to Yes, we know each other from other places. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, and so, as I said, this is just the beginning. So yes. um, I would love to keep you informed on what's going on. I yes, know you please. stay informed. You're so engaged Almost with every episode, I'm always mentioning Crohn's because <laughs> at some point I'm like, so I volunteer with Crohn's Eclatus Canada. But no, yes, it's it's important to our listeners as well. We get a lot of feedback at Guts and Glory, not just from Canadians, but from people all over the world who are listening. 
And though some of the information, like the impact report is specific to Canada, it's still better informing IBD patients anywhere, you know, and that is most significant. There is always room for any of our GIs and CCC here at Guts and Glory, always. Um, I know you all are very busy, so I really appreciate the fact that you've come here and you're with us. Um, This was a fantastic episode. I learned so much. I cannot wait for all of the other things that I get to help out with in the future to help push some of these recommendations along. Um, So to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. I'm sure you've learned an excessive amount of information. Please make sure you head over to Crohn'sAncolitis.ca, not just for the impact report, but also to look at all of the other tools um, and resources that are available on that website. I will see you next time. Strength and positive thoughts. The information on this podcast is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All information contained on or related to this podcast is for general information purposes only. 